Hello friends, welcome back to the program. This is Dr. Jack. I am an online psychology instructor who also travels the world with his family of three. And, well, recently I had the privilege of speaking to Robin Tamanaha, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist located in Orange County, California. She is the second guest that I was able to find through the Asian American Psychological Association. So I'm really happy to have her uh, on board to talk about what she does. And her specialty area is in bipolar disorder, amongst others. But uh, we do spend quite a bit of time talking about her experience in working with the area. So hopefully you'll get a lot out of that. And she actually, she's a very busy person, she actually hosts a couple of podcasts as well. One is called Books Between Sessions. So she talks to authors of books that, who write about mental health. And Open Mind Night, where she interviews other mental health professionals. And uh, so take a listen to both of her podcasts. I'll put the links uh, in the description below. So basically, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think uh, it's always wonderful to hear a practitioner's origin story in terms of how they got into the field and eventually settled in their work as a private practitioner and how they're able to get started and, and get clients, right? And as well as her expertise in describing bipolar disorder. So think of this as a primer, a nice overview for for people working with bipolar disorder. Now, I do need to mention that since I'm speaking with a clinician, I don't want people to assume, and this is a disclaimer from my invisible lawyers, I guess, that this podcast is not a replacement for treatment, is not a guide for treatment for yourself, is purely for educational purposes. So if you have any, uh, or yourself, or, or people you know, or close family friends who um, need this kind of assistance, or you suspect they have um, some struggles and need professional help, then find that kind of help in your community. Okay. All right. So with that said, let's go ahead and uh, start the conversation. Okay. I'm very excited to have my guest Robin here from Orange County, who is a private practitioner. And um, I'd like to start every episode which, with getting to know our, my guests and, and their origin story, so to speak, like how they, and you can start at any age that's appropriate, like how things got started for you and how you became a therapist. Uh, I think every one of my guests, whether they're a professor or a private practitioner, always had really amazing stories to tell. Um, so what is your story, Robin? Yeah, thanks for having me on too. Sure. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for me, it's been a really interesting journey. It was actually a specific experience that I had that led me to go into the field of psychology and eventually become a therapist. Um, I had office jobs all my mm -hmm. life. I'm extremely organized and detailed, front office, admin, like I love that kind of stuff. And so when I was in my early 20s, I went on a job interview uh, and it had the duties that I love doing, organizing, filing, scheduling, all that. Yeah, yeah. And it turned out it was for a therapist who had her own private practice here in Orange County. Hmm. So I applied, I went on the interview and I was super excited. And I could tell 
she didn't know, like, she knew I knew the job, but not like what exactly she does. Like she, right, I right. knew the job task, but not like therapy. So for me, um, I grew up not knowing that people went to therapy. I heard of psychiatry yeah. because right. at least in my family and culture, you're not feeling well, you go to the doctor, you get medicine and all that. So I heard of that, but I didn't know that therapy was a service that people actually use. So right. Here I am in this interview with a therapist. I still don't technically know what she does. <laughs> I was just wanting to like do what I usually do with work. Right. And I could tell she didn't really know that I, what I, she did, she could tell that I didn't know what exactly her job entailed, <laughs> but she was so nice. And I think she picked up on how excited I was. And she actually hired me on the spot. Hmm. She was like, you know, I feel good about this. I feel good about you. I want to take you on. Why don't you, you know? And so she hired me. And I did what I usually did, which was organizing. I did scheduling. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a very transformative experience because people would call in. This is a while ago before a lot of our techie stuff. So people right. are calling in for services right. and I'm asking them why they're calling in and they're telling me everything. And she was mm. a psychologist and certified sex therapist. Okay. So people are coming in for intimacy, infidelity. Yeah. Maybe they're going through cancer treatments, which affects your hormones, which affects your intimacy and your relationships, you know? So I'm hearing it all. And yeah. so up until that point, I didn't know People use therapy. Right. I didn't know people called in. I didn't know it was okay to call in right. because and, and reach out for help because in, in my family, that's not something we did. Either yeah, it wasn't thing, allowed yeah. mm -hmm. or it just was this unknown territory that was kind of uncomfortable. So people didn't talk about feelings. So it was fascinating. I loved it. I worked with her for about, I think, like a year and a half. Um, I, I borrowed her books. I, I was like so just like, intrigued by this whole yeah. thing and she was she would come in each day you know super excited and just tell me about her day she didn't tell me anything specific so she maintained confidentiality I mean, yeah. but she just was so passionate and i'm like this is this is fascinating and hmm. you know being a woman and her own boss i thought was super empowering right so i was just kind of absorbing it all um, learning a lot about mental health. I helped her, um, find topics for her blog posts too. So I was actually helping her. I was all learning even more like a research assistant. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Oh, this is a cool topic, like current event or whatever about relationship, or I found this. And so I let her know about it. She'd potentially write a blog about it. So, um, so I really delved into it and I got really excited. It was a, a whole learning experience for me. Yeah. And, at the time, I had actually already been accepted to a health and human services program um, up in Monterey in NorCal. It was a really good one. And mm -hmm. I my intention was to go into public health, which would have been very interesting during this pandemic. I would have had a whole different yeah, experience. Yeah. But my goal was actually to do that, come back to County of Orange and potentially work for uh, public health here. Right. Now, when you were working as the administrative assistant, I guess that was the title, right? Um, was that your post back period? Like you had a bachelor's degree and you were, or was that during your undergrad? What, what time period was that particular job when you started that job? I was a transfer student. So I was actually oh, okay. in community college. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, to be yeah. honest, even when it came to the public health, it was something that was suggested to me by a family member. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't know if I was going to go the education route because I didn't know what I wanted to be. Yeah. And so that was something where I'm like, well, that's interesting. It's kind of health and sciencey. One side of my family is very academic. They work in education. They are in the medical field. They're engineers. And so that was, those were things I never really kind of jived with. I was like, I don't know about those things. So I felt kind of lost in a way. And so I was technically in community college about to transfer to Cal State Monterey Bay. Yeah. And um, and that's how that's essentially how the health and human services came up. And then I thought, OK, I'll do public health because one of my family members actually knew somebody who worked for the county and was like, you right. know, I think that may be a pretty, pretty solid job, yeah. as we found out for sure, too. Yeah. You know, and um, but a semester in, I transferred I, I wasn't really interested in it. And I also mm. didn't know a lot about it too, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. I was kind right. of just going along with it. And what always stuck in the back of my mind was the experience I had with that therapist. Mm. And I sat with my interest, my curiosity, how passionate she was. And my turned out my interest in psychology through that. I learned a lot through that experience. And so the first semester, I changed my major to psychology. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do whatever I I need to, to have my own private practice, be my own boss, help others, potentially helping others who don't know it's okay to reach out for help. I, you know, working with BIPOC API Mm -hmm. and that's, um, that ended up, I just went with it. And that was the best decision I ever made. I, I was never super academic in school. I always struggled. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and just, in life in general, like, what am I going to be kind of like those existential questions, you know, and, but when I changed my major to psychology, and I'm like, hey, that's what I'm going to do. That was the first time in my life that I felt really good and solid about a decision I made for myself. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, with my audience being many of them students, considering a career in psychology, and my daughter, who's 19 and just finished her associates and moving on to a four-year university, I, th- I, I gathered from their mindset, and maybe mine too at that age, I think they have this vision that they're supposed to pick a major, and and that's the only road they can take. It's like a lifelong commitment, you know? It's like it's contract. Okay, I chose this major. I got to go for it, whether I like it or not. And that's really not the case. Everyone I've spoken to had this fork in the road or had this door open because of this unexpected experience like yours that inspired them to pursue a career in a different direction and that we should tell people that it's okay whatever stage or age you are if that happens be open to it right yeah exactly there's i felt the pressure i see it now with some of the gen zers that i work like oh god i gotta figure this out you know what am i gonna do and it's and it's okay to change you know and you think you know, sometimes things, at least for me, things happen along the way that really change everything. And, you know, looking back, like if I didn't have that experience or I didn't sit with myself and really decide, you know, what am I going to do? I don't know where I'd be. Like maybe I'd be in public health and that would have been, I mean, very, um, it's very important, especially during this pandemic. But maybe not super interested in it, just kind of doing it. Cause sometimes I, I think um, within me in the past and those that I know, we just kind of go along with things cause it's stable, right? right? It's right. financially stable or it's all, but there's not a lot of passion behind it. Right. So I could have been in public health 
but not super interested in it or not, and then still kind of lost. So I'm glad I just did a lot of reflection and just did what felt right for me because the career that I chose is not something that anyone in my family does. I mean, sitting with feelings alone, talking about stuff, and then having this career that isn't always understood too. I have a feeling that uh, you know, and I found you through the Asian American Psych Association listserv, right? So you're the second person I'm speaking to from that invitation. And I have a feel, and I have many more to come. I have a feeling that everyone I'm going to speak to, they're probably the first in their family to go into mental health or psychological field. I, I'm, that's my guess, my assumption, because I certainly was as well, because it's just not a typical choice or not a not a field that, say, parents or relatives would encourage and push you to go into, right? It's usually the stereotypical medicine, engineering, law, you know, the ones that have big salary numbers and, and high status titles, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Did you, did your family have that kind of pressure on you um, to, to, or were they pretty flexible and open and accepting with whatever you want to choose? for your like college major and career? Fortunately for me, my parents were never like, you need to choose a specific path. However, with my grandparents and like outside family members, there was, I felt this kind of mm, certain messages that these are the okay jobs (laughs) or these are the jobs we know, kind of like the ones you listed. Um, My, one of my parents was like, at the time, looking back, like with social in community college, he was like, well, either work or you go to school, you know, and, and that parent was the one that suggested public health, like human mm. services, just wanting me to find something, something, you know, yeah. just something. Yeah. And that, that person's also in education. Um, whereas my other parent was like a little more freeing, um, in, in just whatever it is you'd like to do. But I definitely felt the pressure of needing to have a career like even though it wasn't always like overtly verbal like expressed to me within my immediate family i felt it like i just i I, there was just these like other messages or like sometimes there was um where i hear it it was like kind of comparisons but not direct comparisons (laughs) where it's like okay i'm just gonna hear this story really loudly about somebody else and how the medical school they're in or what college they got accepted you know so i i picked up on other ways of like oh my gosh what am i gonna do this is indirect yeah pressure yeah oh my gosh even today right i'm i'm 55 my dad is 83 and still he'll share stories about his townies uh friends kids right Oh, so and so is the uh, you know president of AT and T in Dallas, and she was on interviewed on TV. Or oh, you know, so and so has her own uh, bakery, and she beat to- uh, Bobby Flay. You know, she has a bakery in Boston. Or you know, there's always like something that he's yes. bar- like saying. Like, and I'm wondering, well, uh, what are you trying to say, Dad? You know? <laughs> yeah, because it, we feel it, right? I've experienced yeah. that from my grandparents, where it's yeah. like, oh, my friend's grandchild mm-hmm. is doing this, and I was like. That's like the dinner table conversation, you know, yeah. and I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know how to interpret this, but I feel kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, we were always compared to, and I'm, I'm sure no one's going to hear this, who I'm talking about, but I was compared to, we were, we have, uh, I have two sisters, right? I'm the middle child. And this other family also had three kids, sort of parallel ages, right? 
and they were the Yen family, right? So all three kids became medical doctors, you know what I'm saying? And so we were always compared to the Yen family. And, uh, and one, one time at a family dinner, my younger sister said, oh, you always talk about the Yen family, like, you know, they're, they're just so uppity and high class. And my dad just jokingly, maybe not so jokingly said, no, you guys are just low class. <laughs> and we're like, oh, what? And that's just like, threw us for a spin. And my dad is the most gentle man, you know, it was, so, so it was kind of shocking. He would say something like that, even in a joking manner. It's like, oh, is that how you see us? But another funny story, my good friend in college, one of my best friends, he, uh, we were both engineering majors. He became a medical doctor later. He grew up in San Antonio. And when we were chatting, we went to the University of Texas at Austin. So we were chatting about, oh yeah, I always got compared to this family. And he said, yeah, we were always compared to the Yen family. And I'm like, wait, you mean the three? You know, and and you know, the, I named the names right. The, the the the, I think two brothers and a sister. You know, you mean these three? It's like, yeah. How do you know them? It's like, we were compared to the Yen oh. family too. So, I wonder how many people out there have been compared to the Yen family. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, that that's unfortunate, but that's just that's a cultural thing, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um. It, okay. It, it is. It is, and I and I think for me, that's something I um over time, really reconciling with that, especially as I stuck with the major and going through and through the field. And my long-term goal is like, you know, not compartmentalizing, but, you know, keeping, being mindful in what I'm hearing and also knowing, okay, well, you know, that's their reaction. This is, you know, what they're saying. And it's maybe some of their stuff, but even yeah. though that's what I'm experiencing. This is what's important to me. And this matters to me and what I'm passionate about. So I had to really make sure to like stick with my intentions and my goals for what I want for myself and, and, and my life and my career. Yeah. And we should celebrate other Asian Americans who are going into the mental health field, you know, going to these non-traditional for our particular group. Right. There needs to be more. Too. Yeah. There needs yeah. to be a lot more. Yeah. And, and I'm so grateful that, that you're into it and, and for me, teaching psychology just at a different way, right? Instead of, you know, I'm a counseling psych person. So I had three years of doctoral training, but, you know, at some point I had the fork in the road to go the education route to teach. And so my rationalization was, well, I could help people in a therapy group one-on-one, -on -one, uh, but when I'm in the classroom, I can affect 38 lives at a time, you know, and that's okay too, right? That's just a different way of, of promoting psychology or, yeah. you know, opening the door for that. Um, so yeah, we definitely need more psych professors who are Asian American, more therapists. Um, so what, what do you think that perspective of being for you, Japanese American brings in terms of your practice? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think in general, so I'm in Orange County. Um, yeah. And it is diverse, but still, like I like I said, I wish there were more. I always get so excited when I meet other um, API or Asian therapists. Yeah. And what I found is, in general, like a lot of them do want fellow API. There's this kind of balance in things that maybe don't always have to be explained, like you know the general, yeah. and then also, well, at the same time, me monitoring that and knowing that everyone has their own individual story. That's Even right. if I'm sitting across from a, a fellow Japanese American, generationally, familial-wise, the stories could be quite different. So I'm also monitoring um, monitoring that part for me. I think a huge thing is 
representation too. Like, and not just being, being the therapist, but also what we put out. Like I do a lot of blogs, like I have my podcast. I used to do a lot of like lives or now I'm, you know, being a guest, you know, and, and in that way. So I think it's us even taking it further in just how we are um, communicating the information, how we are showing up. I think for me, it's been interesting because as a therapist, I'm technically an introvert. Like people wouldn't naturally Mm. guess this, but I'm super, super introvert. Um, So part of me also has had to sit with myself being seen, my being seen and showing up as an Asian therapist, who's going to outwardly talk about mental health and mental illness topics. Yeah. So you wouldn't think, right? Cause you do really like, oh, you know, people think different things about being a therapist, but um, that was combined with, I think culturally too, being an Asian American woman and uh, using my voice yeah. and talking about things. That representation is so powerful because uh, in the, I, I did my internship in LA and I stayed with my aunt at my aunt's house in Fountain Valley in uh, Orange County, and for that one year, right uh, back in the late '90s, that that those 12 months are just so ingrained in my head. Those experiences and those patients that I work with at the VA hospital, that one was one person was Asian American who was a combat veteran, right? But he had ethnic identity issues. He never saw himself. He was sort of ashamed of his Asian background and his appearance, and he would always hide himself under a hat, right? And then, and then this is this is meant to be a ten-session short-term psychodynamic therapy, right? So we were supervised on this particular method, and this particular patient who knew going in, we would have ten sessions. So every day, I, every week, I would remind him this is session number five, whatever. And then by session, I think maybe five or six, uh, my interns and my supervisor, we watched it was videotape, which is horrifying, by the way. <laughs> you know, so it's videotape supervision. So we would we would re- review it right during our supervision meetings. And we noticed that he took off his hat, right? You know how in therapy there are these moments, right? That kind yeah. of are very meaningful. Yeah. And and we sort of discussed that, like, you know, he wasn't afraid to show himself. And we talked about how perhaps it was being able to see me being comfortable in my own skin that, hey, it's okay to show my face in this environment. You know, if Jack can do it, then maybe, maybe I'm okay with being myself. Okay. Which I thought... And that's part of representation. He wouldn't have had that experience if it weren't for me looking and being of my cultural background, right? That's powerful. Yeah, that is. Okay, Robin, I do want to um, backtrack a little bit and talk about the master's degree you got, which is in marriage and family therapy, right? And so, and then you have a license in that. Can you talk a little bit about those who may have not have heard of this? Uh, they may have just heard of counseling and, and clinical. How, what's unique about marriage and family therapy and the training you got? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it was important to do marriage and family specifically, just because I am more mm, focused on like family dynamics and like relationships. So focus is more on the internal as opposed to let's say, um, although sometimes it is the case, at least with, you know, social work, where it's a little more macro. Right. Um, so for me, it was important for it to be more focused on families. And I think, you know, too, probably looking back because of my experience working for that therapist, her focus was on relationships. I actually um, thought that I was going to potentially go into couples work uh, in mm-hmm. the end because she did a lot of couples work. Right. Uh, but I, I took it a different way, which was 
seeing individual clients. I saw families. So there's a lot of different different ways you could use it, but it is more focused on family dynamics. And for me too, especially as API, I know there's a lot of factors, not just culturally, but within like culture and family dynamics. So for me, that was important as something I wanted to, to focus on. But as with any of the majors, you can do a lot with it. I just right. happened to go the route of private practice, but I've worked in community mental health. Um, and I even worked for mental health insurance portion. So you you could still do other things with it. It's just, it's kind of what jives with you and where you feel like you would want to hone in on when it comes to conceptualizing a case, if that makes right. any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So your, your, your degree and your training allows you to have much more insight into family dynamics. There's much more a focus on that, right? Or multi-generations, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I um, were where I went to school. So technically my master's is in um, master's of science and psych psychology. Okay. Okay. Um, the program prepped us for the MFT exam. So that's oh. probably a huge thing to keep in mind when you're looking at programs is what the focus is, because mm -hmm. essentially they're going to be prepping you for that licensure exam. So it'd be important to know in my case, they were prepping me for the MFT one, but other ones, they may be prepping you for the LCSW or the right. LPCC or psychologist, right? right. It, it, is it is vastly different. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah. So what does mm -hmm. the LMFT licensing exam comprise of? Like, what was the test's requirements and what was that like? <laughs> I had a joyful <laughs> bringing, experience. Am I bringing up a traumatic experience? <laughs> no. So, yeah, I... It was a joyful experience, and I say that sarcastically because they changed the exam after I graduated. So, oh. I were I think when I initially got into it, it was more um, short answer mm -hmm. essay, and then they totally just standardized it all and made it multiple choice. Really? So when oh. I graduate, which is interesting because, so when I was in the program, I was prepped for doing these like short answers, long answer type of things, right? For the ethics and for the clinical. So I graduated thinking, okay, so now I know, you know, kind of part of testing is knowing what the test is gonna be like. That's a huge part of tests in general. So then you, I graduate and of course you have to accumulate hours before you're even eligible to sit for the exam. So fast forward two, three years later, yeah. during that time they decide to change the exam and just make a multiple choice. Wow. And they split up how they did it. So, um, fortunately I took other programs to help me prep for the exam. So I think mine was an unusual case because of the timing and then the DSM, the new DSM came out. Uh -huh. So for me, it was like this odd timing, but, but usually they'll, they'll actually, at least for mine, they actually prepped you for essentially what it's going to be. Is it going to be short answers? Is it going to be multiple choice? So you know how to do the critical things. So you know how to really think through the answers. But for me, I ended up by the time I was able and eligible to sit, it ended up being something completely different. that is very odd that that a licensure... test anxiety so i was like oh this is this is wonderful <laughs> yeah yeah you would think an essay would be more appropriate or even um i guess the, they don't do it at, for the license for uh, lpc or lmft but i think for the psychology state license is usually like an in-person thing where you where you're grilled by a or, or questioned rather by by a panel Right. I wish they kept that for ours, but mm. I think they did that for ours around the year I was born, like oh, yeah. way a long time ago. They probably don't have the resources. More... Yeah, maybe they don't have the resources for that, right? There's so many 
therapy schools. You know, yeah. I think it just became more and more standardized. But I think honestly, that is a great way to go. Mm. Like I, I and I, I for me, that's kind of something I feel like I'd feel more comfortable with as opposed yeah. to sitting and writing something. Yeah. But yeah, so it evolved the LMFT. It went from oral in like the 80s to then short answer. And then in the past some odd years, just totally multiple choice. Yeah. And the, the licensures are bound by the state, right? So is that correct? correct. Yeah. So if you move yes. from state to state, you would have to either, I mean, what would be the process? Do you know if you were like move to Arizona, move to Texas, move to Massachusetts with your looked, California license? Yeah, I looked into it. I was considering getting dual license, especially during this pandemic yeah. to reach more people. Right. Um, so it kind of depends. I, at least for us LMFTs, California is one of the harder ones. So um, I believe my paperwork is more easily transferable. I looked into one particular state that I know is a need for API. And I think for them, once you hit like a five year mark, you just send in your paperwork. You don't have or your paperwork as a, when it comes to the licensure, not your coursework. So right. every state has their own. Some of them make you sit. Some of them right. make you turn into paper, turn paperwork, depending on how long you've been licensed. Like so a reciprocity thing. In a way, yeah, just so saying, okay, yeah. It's not one unified system. Right, right. And I think that was also a challenge where I really wanted to be licensed in other states. Yeah. And then the process was just like, it took a long, long time for me to even figure out each individual state's process. Yeah, I spoke to a psychologist, um, was maybe two interviews ago, that, and he has a private, large private practice in Georgia, and talked about how the pandemic affected his practice that before that they had no remote type counseling. And so during the pandemic, did you have to switch and sort of go that route or do you, did you continue with in-person therapy? So I already had one uh, video client who mm -hmm. lived in a totally different part of the state, but uh, due to the person's business was sometimes in Orange County. So we were kind of a hybrid yeah. of uh, video and in person, depending on the person's location at the time. And this was about a year before the pandemic. So I had already had it. And it's because of my specialty, because the person there was no bipolar specialist where this person lived in that county. It's a very small county. And so once it came to be the pandemic, it wasn't a super hard shift for me because I had already done it once 50% mm -hmm. of the time with somebody. Yeah. Um, so I had, and then before doing private practice, I, I worked for um, uh, man in managed care where I, I had to assess whether or not someone was appropriate for telehealth. So I had already had some familiarity oh, with how to like assess for that. Yeah. But I think it was hard. I saw a lot of my therapist colleagues struggle because it was a huge shift. Yeah. I already had a platform. And yeah. then also to um, the client's comfort with that and, right. and really doing something, um, something different as it, it is as effective honestly yeah. yeah so for me it wasn't super hard but it's just because i had some some experience with yeah it it's like an education a lot of people retired if they're close to retirement age because they taught in person they're like oh i'm gonna have to learn a whole new system of teaching online and sometimes they don't have that mental buy-in you know like this can't be as effective so if they're not really into it at that level they don't believe in it then you know that's gonna be harder i, I assume that's the same thing with remote uh, therapy, right? Someone has to really, like yourself, believe in it, that this can be effective, or might even have some advantages. Maybe you can reach people that before they just didn't have the 
mental fortitude to get out of bed to actually drive to a therapist's office. Yeah. It, it helps, especially when it comes, because I work a lot with mood disorders. So, mm -hmm. um, and then too, Orange County is kind of turning into LA where the traffic is awful. Yeah. So just having to factor in commute time, there's convenience in that. And then also just reaching people. I mean, my furthest clients up in NorCal. So, okay. you know, you could really, the one silver lining was um, reaching more people. It was always an option, but I think the pandemic made people more kind of open to it because a lot of people are working from home. You're doing right. a lot of things virtually from now. Yeah. So this was kind of just another another service that you're doing right. like from yeah. your house. That's a car. great point. Yeah, because at their work, they might be working remotely. So it's just another Zoom or, or telephone call for them, mm -hmm. which is good. Um, so that's a good segue into your specialty area of bipolar disorder. And I, I know as an educator that so many disorders are just so misunderstood by the general public that uh, can you explain from your experience as a clinician the wide variety you know, of different types of bipolar disorder, maybe the ones that are more common than others that you've seen or age groups, that kind of thing. Um, just, just for the person who just has a very basic understanding of what bipolar disorder is. Mm -hmm. I think when people picture bipolar disorder, um, it is more in like, stigmatizing ways or severe impairment ways where person's not functioning, they're not able to do this, they're not able to do their goals or that, but there it's actually a spectrum. There's a lot of people that may have even bipolar two um, mm -hmm. that may not know. So initially starting out, I started in community mental health. So I did more, was working with more of the severe population. These are ones in and out of psychiatric unit or it had maybe affected their job or their relationships or their self-care in some ways. And now that I'm in private practice and I have been for the past like over three years, it's I, what I see is more bipolar two. And with can that- you explain, Can you explain real quick what bipolar two is? Mm -hmm. So bipolar two is the person will experience hypomania, but not mm. full mania. So what that looks like is it's gonna be, the symptoms are gonna be less than a week. It's going to be more milder, like there may be some irritability in mm. some ways that energy, that goal directed activity, that staying up at night probably helps their job or makes them be more productive, which is yeah. why it's 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 something that they're it, it's kind of sometimes um, to treat it. They have to kind of sit with it. They don't want, they don't want to lose that in some sort of yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And the most crucial part between bipolar one and bipolar two is with bipolar two, it's really not going to cause significant impairment. These are CEOs, mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, highly successful executives, creatives, they're doing very, very well. So their symptoms sometimes actually help them get a lot done right, and right. help them be successful. Um, but it is still distressing to experience. So right. I, I steer away from the whole severe aspect because I look at more of like, how much is it impairing your life? Right. Is it impairing it to where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm losing multiple jobs, my relationships, I'm not taking care of myself, all these things. And it's really other people are really noticing it too, or commenting. Maybe that's a little more on the bipolar one and the bipolar two. It's like, oh, that person seemed kind of like they woke up on the wrong side of the bed today. Mm -hmm. Or wow, this is like MVP person at work getting stuff done. So it, it, it definitely manifests uh, differently, but the biggest right. thing is the is the severity and severity. the length of time of the symptoms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think for the everyday layperson to understand, because you know having a mental disorder sounds scary, right? Mm -hmm. And 
and they may have a visualization of, oh, that person is this way or that way, or like you said, non-functioning. But it seems like the bottom line in terms of whether something is a disorder or not is like what you said, how much of your daily functioning is being impaired or interfered with, right? Do you get to a point where you can't call down a job or you can't maintain relationships or you're harming yourself or, you know, that kind of thing, right? And so I, you know, those are the big warning signs for the everyday people if they're wondering what are some warning signs is how much impact, negative impact does it have on one's life, right? Yeah, and the bipolar two criteria still fits with some of the other where it's the end or. Um, is it causing significant distress mm -hmm. or impairment? So, mm -hmm. it's for, yeah. so for at least for the bipolar two, it's like there's that significant distress piece yeah. for sure. Yeah. 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 So they may be functioning or like you said, even yeah. functioning well within their job, but they're suffering in some level. But, it, but they feel like a tornado inside. They got this ball yeah. of fire and rage and there's anger right. and then they're hitting the low. For bipolar two, the, if there's any part of the, uh, the episodes that are the most impairing, it's actually the depression. So when I have, when people call in for services and they're reporting major depression, I'm actually gonna assess them for bipolar two because right. the, the, the depression episode actually takes up more of the lifetime than the hypomania. Mm -hmm. And there's periods of neutral as in without. Yeah. So it's interesting with bipolar two because it's the major depression that's the significant impairment, not the hypomania. I'm assuming, and, th and this is what I recall from training, is that that can be often misdiagnosed, right? Because, bipolar disorder, yeah. yeah. Bipolar 2, it's usually misdiagnosed as major depression. Major depression. Because that's right. when they're calling in. Because when they're hypomania, they're like, oh, it's fine. Things you are know? fine, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I see great. things unfold, and I'm like, oh, Right. You know, yeah. so it, it, it is very commonly misdiagnosed as yeah. MDD. So what do you do as a clinician, other than the fact that you're a specialist in that area, but what would an everyday clinician need to do um, to differentiate between and not make that mistake and not make that misdiagnosis, you know, in terms of a tool or assessment tool or, or just the clinical interview? What, what is it that they need to do as a clinician to make sure that they get the right diagnosis otherwise it, especially if medications involved right it can make something worse yeah. if they're misdiagnosed yeah for me what i tend to do and i think for me it comes more just with experience yeah. um but sometimes i'll actually throw out descriptors because we can look at the symptoms on the dsm and all that yeah, yeah. but like how does it actually manifest in real life like what are some real life examples of it so what i tend to do is now um, I'm throwing out different descriptions. I mean, like, does this sound like you? Does this sound like you? Hmm. Initially, when I was starting out, um, when I was like more of a newbie therapist, it was having them describe some of these symptoms. What does that look like? How does that show up for you? Hmm. And seeing if you can get some descriptions on that. And then how does that make you, how does it make you feel? So still honing in on that, um, that curiosity mind and knowing that things you, you actually may see things in front of you. I, Essentially, each session I have with someone is an MSC, is an M mental status exam, because mm -hmm. it's especially when the hypomania is hitting, we're building the insight and that awareness. So we are the ones kind of really observing what they're seeing and then reflecting back like I'm noticing this. Like I've done this a lot with clients right. like I'm noticing like you feel different today. Am I am I right? And they're like, you know, yeah. being more energetic as they're talking, right. they're talking faster. And I was like, 
can you describe to me like what's happening for you right now? So being being very um, also experiential in what's happening in the room and knowing that bipolar disorder does not just encompass what you may think it is when it comes to bipolar one, especially in the private practice world, it's predominantly what I see as bipolar two. Mm-hmm. Um, so really getting um, an idea of what it, how it manifests in, in everyday life and having them describe it to you. And I think over time, I mean, I've been working with this for like almost 10 years, but I have like personal experience that goes like way back that you kind of start to pick up on things. Like you start to pick up on these orange and red flags, like something feels different, like mm-hmm. being super, super observant. Yeah. Um, as far as questionnaires, there are certain ones. I use them more of a tool when I do the assessment. So like, um, like the mood disorder questionnaire is like a basic one or mood check one. Yeah. Um, there's one that's like goes more into history. And then there's other ones where I'm actually sending it to them like every like randomly to complete via my portal. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a diagnosis tool, right. but it does help discussion questions. So if someone's responding at, um, to certain to certain questions, I would just talk about it because a lot of the times too, I'm assessing like, okay, is this anxiety or ADHD though? You know, so mm-hmm. you can, it can also be used to, to, to rule out other things. Right. So I would say use them more of as a discussion tool, as opposed to like a full, it can help with diagnosis though. Yeah. 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 yeah these, these paper and pencil tools, you know, we have to use them very carefully, right? That's just mm-hmm. a one component of an overall picture of a person. We can't overly rely on them. Is that right? Pretty yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. And I do yeah. timelines. I mm-hmm. have like a dry erase board that I erase later and I'm doing timelines of all the episodes, all the symptoms. Mm. What we know is that sometimes, um, you know, we're also looking at stressors, changes, and triggers. Is that happening around the time of a mood episode? So I very organized and color coding things. So I get really, um, visual almost like house you know he's got the whiteboard and he's kind of doing it all and (laughs) i I just i dive right in so yeah even though i'm in private practice my intake is still like as as i was back in the agency it's at least 90 minutes long because i'm trying to get the full timeline here um and then continue to assess after that Mm -hmm. yeah that's really great now for your clients and you refer to them as clients not patients Mm -hmm. is that correct Mm -hmm. yeah um do you have clients that are just uh, that you see maybe weekly that that on an indefinite basis or, you know, what what's sort of the typical length of the counseling sessions that you see for your mm-hmm. for your clients? If it's bipolar disorder mm-hmm. um, and, and depression, it since it is more chronic for me, I'm starting out where it's required at least weekly. It's it, there's so much in the beginning to collect and for me to observe yeah. over time though, depending on how the symptomology is showing up, their management of it, are they doing the interventions? I'm, I'm, you know, we've been practicing and talking about, I do titrate them to like every two, three, and then monthly. But what we know with bipolar disorder is sometimes we got to be careful when there's stressors, major life mm-hmm. changes and stuff like that around that time. I actually may even bring up to them, hey, could I see you a little sooner if we know something's upcoming or right. you just experienced something? Can I see you next week? Right. So it, it does kind of wax and wane, but at least for me overall with bipolar disorder, it's not like they're going to see me every week forever. I don't right. also, even though it is chronic, I don't feel like that's helpful and I yeah. don't feel like that's going to give them some um, opportunity for growth. And also 
because some come in thinking like, especially like the newbie ones, you know, where it's like, well, this is a life sentence. This is going to be my life hmm. forever. I'm not going to be able to be successful, which is not the case. Even with bipolar one, you can be successful. You can have meaningful relationships. Yeah. And so for me, I do titrate them, but it can be, it can be years long depending on what's going on in life. But I, for them, I, even with the others, because I see other diagnoses too, there is that titration over time, yeah. titrating down in frequency. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're learning through the therapy sessions, ways of coping, the coping skills, you know. Um, so is it CBT that you're working with? Is there a particular model of therapy that you tend to work with? Or is it sort of a mash of a variety of approaches? It's a blend. So yeah. one is in the beginning, I do heavy interpersonal social rhythm therapy. And that is because it's based off of social rhythms, getting the patterns going. There is the interpersonal component where we mm. talk about family dynamics, your relationships and all that. And that helps with the stabilization in the beginning. Mm. Um, so that's what I use in the beginning. And then we've throughout, I actually, I'm advanced trained in acceptance and commitment therapy, which mm was helpful, especially during the pandemic, because we could yeah. not control that. Right. And with acceptance and commitment therapy, it is that even though things are going a way you would like or not, in this case, a diagnosis or symptoms or a stressor, yeah. how can you still engage with your values and live a life that is meaningful and fulfilling in what you would like? So it's very empowering. CBT is, is pretty consistent. If there's, if there's like, you know, negative thinking and the depression and all that. Right. But I, what I tend to find with my clients is like, we can do some CBT, but bipolar disorder treatment is very action oriented. So we're not mm. always going to be, you know, combating our thoughts and stuck in our head. There's right. a lot we can do. And there's a lot you can do in your life and create your week a certain way, build meaningful relationships, connect with your values. So I tend to do more heavy interpersonal social rhythm therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. Those are the, the my two uh, methods for for bipolar disorder, and wow. the other ones are kind of like as as it fits in. If yeah. it fits in for CBT um, and maybe some of the you know psychodynamic, then for sure. But I find the other two tend to be a little more gain a little more momentum. Hmm. I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, this is so educational for me and, and just out of a selfish motivation, you know, these podcasts I'm doing with my guests, um, and I'm out of the therapy game for such a long time now, just ever since grad school. Right. So I haven't been working as a clinician that to learn about all these different therapies is, is pretty amazing, you know, because I, for yourself, you have to go through the continuing education process, right. To maintain your license. And so you get training and updates and new methods, right? Uh, new data every year. Um, but for myself as an educator, I'm not in that world, right? I, I just see what's in the textbooks. <laughs> it's, I mean, and, and me too. Like when I left graduate school, I knew, you know, we have the theories and like mm -hmm. the kind of ones that have been around for a long time, including CBT, you know, yeah. which can be wonderful. And then once I left, you know, when I graduated, and then especially once I got into the private practice world, because community mental health, there's a lot of like evidence-based practices that we're trained in, like I was, TFCBT, seeking safety, all these things. Yeah. But once you get into private practice world, there's so much more of a wealth of different interventions. Like I, through colleagues, I've learned about EMDR and like oh, right. trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, I've learned yep. about like biofeedback. I've learned right. about, 
I, I learned, I knew about EFT and Gottman because I marriage and family therapy, but not to the extent that some of my colleagues are using it where I was like, this is amazing. You know, you could really dive in. Um, so there's so many, there's so many interventions out there mm -hmm. that it's really, really cool, especially for those of us that love learning. I'm like a lifelong learner. Right. I took my, I do the standard ethics and now it's the suicide assessment one that we have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but everything else, it's like, all right, I'm just going to spend all the money on act. I'm going to do the yeah. CEUs on act. So I did act. And then, um, and then now I'm being trained in others. So it's kind of cool to be able to, to learn, you know, different ones. Um, and ones that uh, really do fit actually in the private practice world. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's an opportunity really just to, instead of thinking of it as a chore to collect those hours, just to renew your license is an opportunity, right? To, yeah. to you know, feed your curiosity and to be a better therapist. That, that's pretty mm -hmm. amazing. Now with bipolar disorder, depending on the type, uh, tell me how many of your clients rely on as part of their treatment medications and how many, you know, versus those who may not require it, you know, so. Yeah, if bipolar, for bipolar one, for sure. Yeah. Um, there's like a huge biological component. So I'd say for those it's, if they're, another thing is if they're open to it. Um, yeah. cause I have some that actually, I do have, especially for the bipolar twos that come to me because somebody like another professional brought it up and they, they're kind of unsure about medication yet. They're kind of scared. Um, so for me, it kind of varies from like 50 to 90% but not because they don't they wouldn't benefit from it it's their readiness about medication yeah. to part of a uh, interpersonal and social rhythm therapy there's a big component where we talk about identity and grief surrounding your health or your what this means for you and to take a medicine it gets real that at that moment where you're taking your first psychotropic mm. medication yeah. it gets real real even though you have already been diagnosed with it and that is a that is a lot for someone to to come to terms with yeah and then yeah. in so but so in the therapy i'm, I'm sitting with the, even the diagnosis component so it kind of ranges from from 50 to 90 i always encourage it though because i do have wonderful psychiatrists that i've networked with that i have a professional relationship with that i trust and i tell them what if it's the first appointment doesn't mean you're going to get the medication you right, know i didn't go right. to medical school but at least from the ones that i I've, I've networked with it's just a conversation about it and you get to decide you yeah. know so i pose it that way so it it, it varies but i have i think in when I was in community mental health, it was nearly, it was like a hundred percent because we're our treatment team. We're all here together and yeah. they're doing multiple services right. for this one building. But in the private practice world, it kind of does look a little different in how the person, you know, what they decide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, um, running a little short on time, but I do want to ask this question. Uh, I asked this question of another private practitioner. Um, how did you prepare on the business side of things? To, to create your because this is a business how do how, you know was it through grad school was it just sort of learning as you go in terms of just going from a graduate student you got your license to prepare yourself to be a therapist to suddenly i have an office and i i gotta manage bills and and payments and insurance and all that so how, how did you prepare yourself for that part of it 
I knew a little bit working for the therapist a long time ago. So I That's knew right. the business right. side. I knew you needed to do marketing and all that, which was good to know as an introvert, because that was scary um, to, <laughs> to network yeah, with people. Bet, yeah. So essentially what was happening was about 10 months before I was like, okay, I think I'm going to go finally take this leap. This was my intended goal the whole time. I did start putting money aside because I knew as a, I'm private pay. Um, okay. It'll take time to build a caseload. So I, I started putting money in savings. That's what I did. And then I started listening to podcasts and I started <laughs> taking, um, looking at, what was free available as far as like business courses mm. to just kind of get my mind ready, get me prepped, can, can kind of get me amped up and motivated. Like, okay, here we go. Kind of like when you train for the Olympics, here I go. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, yeah. start collecting all these things, but it didn't pan out exactly the way I wanted it to or intended mm. it to. Um, essentially what happened was I had had it with a job that I was, that I had. <laughs> yeah. I essentially had had it, and resigned and put hmm. in my two weeks with zero clients. Wow. I had no clients in private. I had an, I had just gotten an office. Yeah. I had a full-time job, but due to certain things, I was yeah. like, I'm done. Yeah. I'm just going to, this, it's time. It's time. And I, and I quit. And wow. so I left, um, not having any clients. The good news is I had all the time in the world then, mm -hmm. and I had some money in savings. So this is pre way pre pandemic. I, started networking. I was doing blind coffee dates with therapists, with psychiatrists, mm -hmm. and I just dived right in. Wow. And so, so in I, a way, you ha I guess the word I'm thinking about is hustle. You got to hustle to establish yourself in the community, get the word out that you're there to reach people who, who can use your services. It's, uh, it's a lot of professional relationship building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you have the time for it, go for it. I think with now with the pandemic, it's a little easier because you could do virtual. Yeah. But my biggest referral source is actually other therapists and psychiatrists. Oh, right. But because in the beginning, I was like, I'm just going to meet and I was very strategized. I don't do couples therapy. I mm. met with a couples therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I met with a psychiatrist. Right. You know, I, I knew who can I cross refer to. So I did my research and it was pretty strategic. And anytime I saw another Asian therapist, I got super excited and made sure um, right. to meet with them, even just to just to build that cool relationship and connection with another API yeah. therapist. So, yeah, it, it's kind of like I had to really put aside my introvert ways and yeah, and just go out there. Yeah. So let's finish up by talking about what you mentioned to me about your virtual monthly clinical consultation group. Yeah. So just uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So that one I started recently this year. Um, essentially, it was I tend to do this thing just like with my podcast where I was like, I don't see this exactly. And I haven't experienced it. So I'm going to do it. And so with the clinical consultation group, it was um, I, I had been a part of some consultation groups and they were lovely and they were helpful. But yeah. I really wanted more within my API Asian therapist community. Yeah. So I had done enough networking and I started to meet people or meet people who knew other Asian therapists. So I put my, the word out that I was going to start a, a virtual clinical consultation group for API therapists in the United States. Within about two weeks, I was like, all right, here we go. I need to set a date now because I had like over a dozen interests. And so I'm in California we have one in Seattle, we have one mm -hmm. in Denver, Colorado, as far as New York, and wow. someone's also moving to Hawaii. So we're going to have that. Nice. Um, <laughs> and, 
And so with that, it's it's once a month for yeah. 90 minutes where we do it via virtual, mm-hmm. um, just like this. And it's clinical, mm-hmm. technically, but it's also just support. And it's right. really cool. And we all have different licensures. You know, mm-hmm. one one came here as an international student. So there's mm-hmm. first gen, second gen. You know, we got all the ranges and all the different parts of the API. So it's so cool to come together. I think aside from clients, my other priority is that once a month group because I started that for me. I needed that and I really wanted that and I wasn't finding that where I was. So I just decided to create it. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. an introvert, that's an amazing thing you did. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. constantly like doing pushing this, your, pushing your pushing boundaries. Pushing my introvert ways, you yeah, know, yeah. pretending to be an extrovert, even though I'm an introvert, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm so glad I put the word out because I'm, I'm just even after the second, you're my second guest. I, I can tell that these are just going to be amazing conversations going forward as well. And uh, and y'all are doing such great work. I say y'all as a Texan, that as a collective, yeah. right? Uh, the therapists out there are doing amazing work. So thank you for your time and thanks for chatting with me. Thanks so much for having me. This was, this was fun. I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. Good.